welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, in this episode, you are going to hear all about how Harry Lycostratus has built an enormous health tech company without raising a single penny. He has bootstrapped his way to a tech company that sells to international healthcare systems and has done incredibly well. You're going to learn a brand new way of thinking about raising money. And that's not to say raising money is a bad thing, but bootstrapping can also be a very good thing. It can be a great thing for culture. It can be a great thing for efficiency mindset. It can actually be a great thing for an innovative mindset too. Um, There's so much in this information. There are so many insights. Harry is a really fascinating founder with a great story. Um, Yeah, listen to this episode and you will definitely be better off whether you are raising money or not. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Harry Lycostratus and he is a highly skilled and innovative software developer and practicing orthopedic surgeon. So he has merged his extensive background in healthcare within the NHS with a passion for software engineering to lead the development of PathPoint, an interoperable digital system for workflow management. Uh, startup founder with excellent interpersonal, collaborative and organizational skills. You can tell you written, you wrote this yourself, Harry. Uh, keen interest in all things digital, specifically designing effective and safe care pathways, data analysis and AI. So basically solving workflow for uh, healthcare. Um, and obviously AI is in there. So looking forward to talking about that with you. But Harry, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, James. And thank you for having me. That is a great introduction. And uh, no, it wasn't me. It was the marketing team that wrote. <laughs> you know, I, you I, can I, definitely tell it's a marketing I, team. I Highly skilled. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I usually sort of uh, say, well, I mean, I'm a doctor, but sometimes I code. But these days I code and sometimes I'm a doctor. So <laughs> I have both hats. Very nice. Very nice. Um Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Harry? Where are you based? So we are based at Ealing. Um, so um, we have um, two floors at sort of uh, Uxbridge Road. We've been here three years, I think. We had a sort of a co-op workspace before when we were yeah. five people or less than ten, rather. And when we started, uh, well, we had our homes so nice um, uh, but we're sort of getting comfortable here now uh, Ealing, and uh, <laughs> um, yeah we might we might move so there's some ideas floating around but currently sort of works out it takes me uh, an hour to get here because i live in barnet but otherwise is uh, yeah it's off seventh and ninth floor we can get the eighth oh. floor but um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good cardio, you know, going up. So I'm, I'm, I'm now on the ninth one. I've got a great view of the whole, um, you know, town. Very nice. And uh, yeah, leading the way as a health tech founder with a standing desk, doing cardio on the ninth floor. It's great. And less than, what, less than uh, 10 people three years ago. And now you've got two floors of a building. So that says a little bit of uh, something about your growth. But mate, yeah, looking forward to getting into this. Obviously, you and I, we, we met at... Um, We've met a few times, actually. Uh, we did an event a long time ago, uh, but we re-met in Malta and we were having a, what was a lovely and interesting conversation. It was actually between you, me and Nadim, the founder of Flow with a PH. 
about VC funded versus bootstrapped companies. You obviously famously being a bootstrapped health tech company, which is a fascinating concept. And Nadeem obviously being venture funded and all the rest of it. Yeah, great conversation and looking forward to getting into some of that with you on this. But before we do, I want to get the background on who you are, where you've come from, what your story is and uh, what leads you to founding a bootstrapped health tech company um so yeah why don't you start at the beginning mate and tell us all about it yeah we'll do so it's, it is a bit of a long story and um you know ties into the standing desk and being 40 plus now <laughs> so uh, it started when i was quite young and uh, it's one of these uh, strange sort of stories really so when i was a thing around 11 a good friend of mine, um, at the, you know, at the time, um, his dad got him an Amstrad 6128. And I loved it. I mean, I, I went around and, you know, he was hooking up to the TV and I think, I think he had eight different colors and, you know, 240 pixels uh, horizontally. It was great. And I started um, sort of um, lobbying my dad. Um, that is sort of, you know, sort of uh, quite suburban or rather rural, let's, let's call it rural really, Greece at, at the north, nothing too exciting. So I, I was lobbying for a number 128. And he eventually, around Christmas, he, he went to a computer shop and he, he got me a PC. And this is 88. So he, he, he got me a, a PC in 8186. And the original IBM PC with a sort of black and white monitor and a big um, five and a quarter inch diskettes and no hard disk. And uh, they given me sort of a, a floppy diskette of MS-DOS 2, I think. Nice. And I was devastated, James. Yeah, <laughs> I was, I hated it. And, uh, you know, I, um, I wanted that Amstrad because I wanted to play games. I mean, yeah, I was 11. And, and I, I, I really, I really was quite angry with my dad at the time. And, <laughs> you know, I kept saying, you know, how uh, my friend's dad was, you know, um, you know, a better dad. What I didn't know at the time. 11 and uh you know and this is this is sort of the 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 sort of darker side of that story is that um my friend's uh, dad was diagnosed and he had very poor prognosis uh, with his pancreas and uh that would have been the last birthday that he would spend with his son and that's how he got him the amstrad so um, I didn't know that. I mean, you know, you don't know these things when you're 11. So I was, um, I, I sort of took a different position. I was just upset because, frankly, a 8086 PC with MS-DOS is no useful to, a, to, to an 11-year-old um, child. So I didn't touch it. I mean, I left in the box for about a week and it was around the Christmas of uh, holidays and at some point, I decided to sort of give it a go. I took it out. I plugged it in. I had to, I didn't know what I was doing. So eventually, I managed to put the set in and boot it. And then I was greeted with a, you know, with a, with a A letter, not even C, a, a for the floppy 
And, and I'm, I didn't know what to do. So I, I went to the library. I, I did find a, a, a book on MS-DOS 1 at the school library. So I, I found how to sort of list the directory and, you know, see the contents of the file. And, uh, and I mean, within a week, you, find, you know, you figure out the 10 MS-DOS commands and that's that. But there was a, there was, MS-DOS at the time was coming with a Pascal compiler. And it had a couple of examples of Pascal programs. So I started getting into that. And I started getting interested. And I started yeah. not wanting to play the, the Amstrad 6128 games anymore. And I wanted to program more. The bigger problem at the time was finding resources and how to order books that was all um, sort of coming from the States and how to wait weeks for the books to arrive. Eventually, a year later, I, I got myself a modem and I would uh, dial into sort of uh, bulletin boards where it's a, it's a funny thing. It wasn't like a normal um, ISP. So you would dial a random number, very expensive because all, all of that was sort of um, dialing the stage, so you had to be quite quite quick with it. And I would dial into the bullet bone and I would post a question and someone would send me an example of the program. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I started. That's how I got into wow. programming. And uh, I've kept on programming um, since that age and I moved on from Pascal, obviously. Um, I did C. Um, I did Python. Well, I guess everybody has done Python. I've, I've done most. I've done Node and a lot of, a lot of programming. Lines. So I've seen the development of, of that over the years. Eventually, I, I ended up um, doing my exams and getting a place in um, med school in Athens. And I took a year, um, I took a year out to travel. So mm. I did travel around and um, I, I traveled to Manchester eventually as part of my sort of European tour. And I sort of liked it, and I applied to the universities here, uh, and I got a place, and I started medical school. All the while, I was still programming in the background, but that was my personal sort of hobby, essentially. I never really used it um, until I was a registrar, and I can get into sort of how, how Pathpoint started a little bit. So I was a registrar at uh, London Northwest, and um, I think this is a story that most people do know. And um, I, was, uh, it, it, I was in orthopedics, and uh, it was a weekend, and we used, to, we used to have a big whiteboard where we would write the trauma list, essentially. This is the list of people working for an operation. Some of them would be um, inside the hospital, and some of them would be at home. And we have to sort of keep track. And they're all hot cases that you're getting through A&E. Um, so, and um, when the clinic came into the trauma room, wiped off the board, we couldn't reconstruct the list, and we sort of wasted the full day. And I thought at the time there must be a better way of doing that. So I started writing a, a little soft app, um, which um, at the time I called eTrauma, because, um, well, I mean, obviously I didn't have a marketing team, so that was all <laughs> I could think about. Uh, and uh, I installed it, and people liked it, and we started using it. And then as people were rotating around, they, they saw value. And they um, started asking me to 
sort of install it in other places. So I ended up installing it in four places. And then people were asking for changes and uh, they're asking for a bit more. And, um, and I found myself essentially spending every single weekend uh, going around hospitals installing updates because um, it was all sort of hosted within the hospital. There was no company or infrastructure. And when the fifth uh, soft person started pushing, I, I, I started saying, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't keep scaling this up. And um, we decided to sort of make a company, and we did, and that is in 2013. So we did make a company, but nothing happened over. And obviously, you know, I was full-time um, trainee, and I was doing orthopedics, and, and at some point... In 2015, I thought there were enough requests and enough sort of um, people asking for that. So I, I thought I will, I will start rewriting it. So I, I had enough um, feedback at the time. So I wrote a, I wrote a essentially clinical data engine, and we're still using that today. It's called the, we call it a data biotic engine. Uh, which is a back-end, essentially, um, piece of code written in C um, and, high, uh, you know, very scalable and, you know, uh, high performance. Um, I'm not going to get a bit too technical, which I tend to. But uh, and essentially, from, from it, it, it took me almost two or three years. So in 2018, I started, I, I spent most of the 20, so of the, um, the, the, the later half of 2017 converting the existing e-trauma um, installations to PathPoint installations. Uh, 2018, um, I, we booked a one by one square at uh, BOA at Birmingham, and we had um, you know, quite good reception there and a lot of support from, from um, the orthopedic community. And I guess the rest is history. After that, we, we, we sort of monetized existing installations and um, we started with our sort of trauma product uh, and we went from there. And now we do way more than trauma. Mm -hmm. I think we, platform, we platformized it to what we now call PathPoint. Um, still using the same sort of background storage, the data biotic storage engine that we do maintain. We keep making it better, but it has been proven to be a very resilient piece of technology. And that is the... Well, the long elevator. <laughs> uh, it's very nice. It's a, it, it's a, it's a lovely story. Um, what I like about it is that ultimately, it sounds like you just coded something to solve your own problem. And actually that means that the problem that you end up solving is meaningful because it was meaningful to you. You were trying to do the job. You could have done the job better with something. You built that something. And then you became something that I've heard a couple of times actually on this on this podcast which is an accidental entrepreneur you sort of didn't want to scale it you weren't thinking of the company first you didn't have the motive of i want to be an entrepreneur i want to build a company i want to employ people to do a tech thing i want to raise my i want to you know you didn't have any of that like you weren't being drawn from the world of startups into this you're sort of from healthcare for healthcare, aren't you? You're a clinician that happens to code. You could see a problem and a solution. And I talk about this a lot. Like if you have two skill sets, you can often see not only the problem, but the solution, especially if that other skill set is coding or computer science. 
So you saw that and actually you just went ahead and thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to build it and solve my own problem. And actually, hey, this solves a problem for other people. I'm going to do that out of the goodness of my heart. I'm going to go around and I'm going to, I'm going to do updates for people and I'm going to, I'm going to try and scale it. And then you're like, oh, should someone buy it? And da, da, da. I think that's a really interesting journey because a lot of people I see from this, Daffid from Concentric, I don't know if you know Concentric, but sort of electronic consent. I do, yeah. Yeah. So same story. Like, the accidental entrepreneur that basically solved his own problem with something that's slightly more than a quality improvement project or arguably just a very good quality improvement project that actually delivered something that actually delivered a change. And then it's like, well, Hey, I could sell this, but Oh, should I sell this? And da, da, da. talk to me about that. So I'm interested now in this bit of like, you've solved your own problem with a bit of tech. Other people now want it. So you've got demand but at this point, you've got no entrepreneurship experience. You've never done a business before. You've never sold anything before. You never set up a limited company or a bank account or any of these things. How do how did you go from being an orthopedic registrar to a CEO? That's a heck of a leap, right? It, it is, and, it, and it's, it's, it's not easy. And I think you make a lot of mistakes along the way and sometimes expensive mistakes. And you you feel constrained at at all times. I think the one of the I think this is something that I don't think a lot of people talk about. But you know, um, for at least you know my journey, I, 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 as you said, I never really intended to mm. to to do business. It was very hard for me to to talk to people, and it took me more than a year before I could actually say a price. Yeah. And is you're battling with yourself with your own instincts in many ways and and you you know because medicine is vocational and you sort of do it and you get paid by by the organization you're working at but is never transactional. And I think that that ethos is often instilled into you as a doctor. So I think the bigger difficulty, there are the logistical difficulties that you sort of um, ask and learn and experiment. But to me, the bigger barrier was myself and how can I now um, sort of switch? It's quite interesting to me because um, I, you don't have salesmanship. So, so, and I remember, I remember when we came out with, uh, this is a bit of a parenthesis, I, I'll get back to the answer, but I remember when um, we were pitching a teledermatology solution back in, I think, 2019. And I had a big audience and some of the executive team was there and I presented the solution. I presented the model, the pathway, how we can optimize um, uh, and, and control the traffic of high volume cases with existing resources. And at the end, I think the dermatologists understood it because mm. that is what they did. But I wasn't sure that the execs did because you know, workflow and clinical operations sometimes can come down, you know, um, to the weeds. Uh, but I, I remember the the execs coming to me and they said, I didn't understand much, but thank you for your passion. And mm. I think 
this is how I was uh, um, essentially making up for my lack of experience and salesmanship. I had that absolute belief that the way forward in a um, constrained organization and is to um, manage traffic as efficiently as possible by deduplicating actions, by utilizing every person at the maximum. And I had such a belief that I was passing that belief without really needing to explain the how. And I think that is common to entrepreneurships. The passion is something that most people do share. Closing the parenthesis, that's how the initial growth has happened. And for me, the, my, the personal growth was mostly around seeing myself as something else. And, and it is something else. And I think, you know, there are times in that journey and as you grow and as you create revenue and responsibilities and workforce and, you know, uh, in some cases, investors, you, you might have conflicting agendas. You have a lot more stakeholders. It was comfortable before. My stakeholder was the trust, the patient, and the specialty. I could live with that, and I could find a way to operate in that environment that I, you know, I would bring value to all three. Mm-hmm. And, well, now it's different. Now the customer is an important stakeholder. And, uh, you know, in, in, you know, at our current soft footprint, arguably local government or more than that is a stakeholder. Society starts to become a stakeholder. Um, the employees are a stakeholder. So uh, in, in, in some cases, the, you, you have to reconcile those agendas that they don't always align. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, and this is the personal journey as an entrepreneur. How do you switch from being a, well, in my case, a, a doctor that is vocationally driven and, uh, you know, an engineer that is quite mm-hmm. pragmatic um, to someone that I, I, I have to lead and I have to, insist on value exchange to hospitals and health providers, which, um, and and I think this is, at least to me, that was the burden I felt. Yeah. And there was the logistics. And the logistics you saw, you know, initially, um, I had a good accountant who also set up my articles association and, (laughs) you know, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know what procurement was. Um, I didn't know that um, doing business with the public sector could be so complicated. Um, <laughs> I, I was still a little bit. I, I was still a little bit naive, as in I will give you a thing that gives you value, and you have to give me some of that value back so I can keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so I, I found all that out slowly and organically. By making a lot of mistakes. I think the identity management bit is a really interesting point. I relate to it very, very much. And I've 
seen and heard this explained in a few different ways. I think for medics, it's really difficult to make that identity management possible because you're going from this very frankly socialist environment of a hospital and communist environment almost of like you know everything is shared that there is no individual there's no i in team like you know everything's for the good of the for everyone else like i sacrifice how i feel for the benefit of others like it's a very giving environment to as you say a very yeah. capitalist environment of transactions and value exchange and you give me this and i get that like it, it you know it's it's very it's very two-way and it's very you have to talk about money and god that is uncomfortable isn't it like yeah. we've never had to do that before because we just turn up to our vocation and we get money in our bank account every month and we don't have to talk about money beyond that and we don't have to we certainly don't have to talk about you giving me some for something that i do and negotiating that and that being actually okay and all those things i think that's the, the incredibly difficult for anyone in healthcare to do. And so I definitely relate to you on that. The other bit that I think I relate to you on is how much entrepreneurship is actually about people and emotions as well. And I'm seeing this more and more with AI coming in and thinking, what can AI do? How can AI take over so many functions in my business? How can AI replace a lot of the things that I do as a CEO? Actually can't do a great deal. Like actually, it actually can't do a lot because so much of my job is being a person and talking to or communicating with in some way other people. And actually, like you pointed out, doing those deals and those conversations, all those things like it's so it's so people orientated and actually that identity management piece first to actually then figure out a way of. How do I become comfortable with myself again? Like, what is the definition of me as an entrepreneur? Like, why am I doing this? What's my why? Like, can I build that as part of my story? Can I now say I'm a doctor and I'm a surgeon and an engineer, an entrepreneur, a business, a tech, do like whatever you whatever you want to call it, right? But becoming comfortable with that first has to be the first step because you can't really do much else, especially in the early days, because being an entrepreneur is so much about being a person in that and and communicating who you are and what you're about because otherwise to your point about your story like you can't give them that passion you can't give them that passion if you're not sitting comfortably with yourself and actually you found it as a way of being comfortable with yourself which is really interesting actually that the way that you turn that around or definitely what put you on that journey of identification and re-identification with yourself was actually just communicating what you're passionate about of like hey i am a surgeon I am super passionate about this. Like, this is something that I think could help. This is why it could help, blah, blah, blah. And having a, as quick a possible conversation about money as possible, probably right at the end. Um, but yeah, that's it definitely seems like you're, the, the way you did it, right? Uh, absolutely. And I think in many ways, I think this probably explains the, the organic journey as well, right? It, because it is about giving. And I think... So, so the organic growth, it has in, in some ways enforced that exchange that we should value what we give to, to the customer. We should value what we give to the market. And I think it is a bit of a remnant of the vocational part of, of, that, of, of our origin. And I'm not saying that there is no benefit in getting investment, but certainly at the very beginning, I found that 
It is about giving. It is about creating value. And I did not want to be distracted from that. And I think that has allowed us to solve 120% growth year on year, you know, since we, 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 we are created. And that is on footprint and revenue and, 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 you know, and, and remain profitable. Right. So remain profitable and have the market and the and the and the clients fund that growth. And it did force us to operate under, you know, constraints. And I think in many ways it's like how the whole thing started. Right. I mean, the need is what um, sort of gives birth to to innovation constraints. Yeah is valuable because we we knew that this is the resources we we had mm. so far from you know from from the market mm. and that is what the market values us how can we give more value out so the market will recognize that how can we make our costs lower and i think that sort of gave us it created innovation. It created yeah. innovation to our business model and to the way we operate, to how we distribute resources, how we prioritize. And it certainly helped in to always be focused. Yeah. It, you know, we knew, we knew from, you know, for at, at, at the very beginning that if we want to grow, we need to put out a solution that people are willing to pay for. Mm. And we have to compete mm. with companies that are well-funded and giving out freebies. And mm. that sometimes can be a difficult deal to make. Mm. You know, you can buy my solution that you have to pay for, or you can get a free pilot for a year from a solution that you don't have to pay to, uh, for anything for. And NHS being a quite a price sensitive market, mm. it is sometimes not an easy argument to make. So we have to be giving more and more and, mm. and give the value to that extent that it makes the competition no worth mm. sometimes even when it's free. It is an aggressive approach, but why you're forced to do. And yeah, I, th I think it is about uh, it, it, the, the focus on, 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 on providing that value. And, and mm. look, I'm not, this is not, you know, I, I'm certainly not saying that investment, and if we had investment, it would have helped. It would. Mm. It would have made a lot of harder decisions a lot easier decisions. Mm. Does it mean we would have, um, you know, does it mean that by having less of a constraint, we, we would have innovated less? Not necessarily. Hmm. But I think in a way, it forced us to do it, hmm. if that makes sense. We, we did not have an option. It does. Yeah. And I, I think this is the learning for me in business. And I do understand that this is probably the outline position or the outline journey 
Um, although it might not be as outlined now with the current interest rates, but that's a different discussion, <laughs> I'm guessing. Indeed, yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, but at, at the time, I mean, you know, money was cheap. So yeah. you could invest into your potential future earnings and, well, you had an interest next to zero on mm. those earnings in the future. So, you know, it was, an, it was a, a sort of a mitigated risk as an mm. investment. I don't think it's the case anymore. Hopefully it will change again. This is, in a way, I think our organic um, growth so far has can be explained a little bit from that origin, mm. you know, because he accidentally started and then, you know, the market of it was the market appetite that pulled us and then we leveraged that appetite as a source of funding. Mm. So it sounds like what you're talking about there is that that organic growth strategy and, and feeling resource constrained definitely gave you, gave you discipline. It definitely put you into... Well, an efficiency mindset in terms of cutting costs, but actually an innovative mindset, conversely, in, I guess, finding those efficiencies or finding different ways to do things that would make you better off in the long term. So that's quite interesting. Yes, I'll give you an example. I think it's a good example. So one, one of the things we, we figured out early is, okay, we have a platform. We're now building products on and, you know, for different, you know, from... Uh, health record to workflow, mainly around sort of operational and clinical um, pathways. Uh, but we felt that we need to have a, that competitive advantage, and that is the customization. We wanted to make the solution to be service-led. Hmm. No, we, don't, we didn't want the, the technology to essentially change the way you work. We, we wanted the service. What the service needs, we need to deliver that as a technology. So we created that flexibility around the platform. Well, that creates cost mm. because now I cannot just give you a solution and then invoice you and then walk away. Mm. I now have to implement. I have to deploy. I have to project manage. I have to do consultation. I have to take on part of your transformation journey. So that gives us the advantage, but creates a cost. And now this is a cost that somehow we need to absorb. And in a price-sensitive market, we, in, in a few other countries we're now operating, the more value-sensitive. So it's a lot easier and a different approach. But in UK, in the social public sector, it is price-sensitive, and it has been for some time. So we cannot just increase the price to now give you that, because we still need to remain competitive. And that forces you to find ways to deliver that value mm at the lowest possible cost. Yeah. And I think this is a decision, and this is the, the, this sort of way of, this playbook would not, have, would not have been developed if we could just, you know, if we could, if we could be non-profitable. Yeah, it's crazy if to we could culture, say, isn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, we can be on a negative cash flow because, you know, I've yeah. got capital... So, for account with a, a lot of uh, funds raised. So, 
Um, so he, he, he arguably would have stopped the innovation on the business side. Yeah. I think that that might be an example sort of illustrating that sometimes the constraint allows you to find ways to be lean and deliver maximum value while you find ways to streamline it and 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 and, and do it in a way that it, it allows you to still remain profitable at the end of the month. Yeah. I think what's really inspiring to me and others here is like your evidence that it's doable, your evidence that it's possible to build a tech company in healthcare, sell to NHS audiences, and now many others, build a company of value. And basically, yeah, your evidence that it's possible, right? But you you did say, and you're an outlier, like, by definition, you are an outlier, that this is not the norm. It's not the normal way things are done. So, and you said money was cheap at the time, especially in the early days, like of, of building this, like, so you could have taken on debt or equity or whatever. So my question is why? My question is why were you organic growth and not taking investment? And I get that the benefits downstream you've talked about are this, this culture now of being able to solve complex problems when it comes to price sensitive versus, you know, quality sensitive markets and all that sort of stuff. And there's definitely a culture that's been created in the company due to that constraint that's always been put on there. I can imagine it's been tempting at times and it might even be tempting now to raise money to do different things, especially now once you've got that mindset and you can probably take on money because you can get a much better valuation, all those things. You're probably much better set in terms of a team to now bring that money in and be very capital efficient with it. So that's definitely a benefit as well. But it's obviously not a luxury that's afforded to very many because I suppose they have to raise money to maybe get ahead in the market or to build that product with all its features that are needed up front. And as you say, to compete in a price sensitive market, they can perhaps raise money and offset that against literally the cost of the product. So I guess why and how might be the two questions here in terms of why were you not taking on money and how did you manage to not take on money and remain so competitive? I know you've given a lot of that answer already in terms of your culture, but yeah, talk to me about that. First of all, what I need to say, you know, about the outlier, I also need to sort of, because sometimes, you know, um, that appears to, you know, it can appear very biased. And, you know, the reality is, is, is uh, you know, you you need the right circumstances. And essentially, uh, you know, uh, and this is why I understand why it is an outlying position, because you need essentially, as I see now, looking back, three things. One, you need um, to have access. And mm. I had access. I was yeah. in healthcare. Yeah, I had access in, in how people think. I had access into these organizations. And this is arguably something of an advantage when you start from yeah. a health professional background. Because it's expensive information. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is the first that is shared with a lot of people today and at the time. The second thing is I was an engineer. Yeah. I could absorb the product cost. 
and that is not easy. The sales cycle in, 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 in this industry, it can be a year. If you have to maintain an engineering team of five for a year, mm. well, someone has to pay for that. Mm. It gets easier as you get momentum. But the very beginning, well, all you have is an idea without implementation, is enterprise. They will not just go for it. And so I could absorb a cost that a lot of people cannot. And the third time, it was the right time. I was earlier. It was before a lot of the sort of, um, you know, a, a lot of the current sort of trend of entrepreneurship sort of come about or at the early stages of. And that essentially made it a little bit easier. There was arguably less competition. There was arguably less scrutiny into credibility, which no one has when they start. So the circumstances allowed us to be an outlier. I'm not necessarily convinced that this can be re reliably repeated and, mm. and, and be a, a, a way. So I, I want to put that out there, that sometimes you just have to get lucky in, in entrepreneurial journeys. And you, you need to have everything aligned with your access, with the cost-absorbing mechanism already in place, and be at the right place at the right time. And we were solved there. So on, the, on your questions about sort of organic growth, over the years, we realized that the health tech is a conservative industry. It is. There's a long sales cycle. There is enterprise. And it has to do with implementation and, and, uh, and proof more than anything. And I'm not quite sure that the sort of the bleed scaling tactic that is sort of common in a sort of more consumer market, it, it, it works. And there is, there is a little of, look, I mean, if I, if I was a consumer and there is a new, let's say, taxi riding app, which is well-funded, it does not have to be profitable and is giving me a lot of freebies, yeah, I, I, I'll go for it. I do know that eventually I will be hit with a price hike, a reduction on my benefits, a probably, you know, meaningless warranty, good chance of a discontinued service. But at that point, I will just switch to the next yep. well-funded taxi riding company <laughs> and the advantage of that. But enterprise cannot do that. Mm. The cost of change is the biggest cost an enterprise has. You cannot, as an enterprise jump on a solution that you know it might be a flash in the pan. Mm. This solution, you might end up with ghostware, unmaintained software, mm. or an unmaintained service because, well, because the interest rates are now high and your runway runs out. So I think 
bleed scaling does not have the network effect. Um, enterprise does not have the network effect that bleed scaling is reliant on, and mm-hmm. it does not have um, that the attitude towards credibility that the consumer has. Mm-hmm. The consumer can switch. The enterprise cannot. They need to be certain they're investing into long-lasting solutions. So this is one of the reasons that I felt that fundraising would not be at the interest, at the interest of, of the market and the consumer. I think I would put my clients at risk. Interesting. Because... I would not be able to, I would not be confident enough that I will be here in 2033 providing that service that you're relying on. Because mm. now I can. Mm. So I think that is the first, the first reason. The second reason is I think you have to prove that you're basing everything around creating value. As an entrepreneur, it is about creating value. And I think you need to create that value not only for the market, but for the investor as well. And sometimes I think as entrepreneurs, we sort of forget that. It is a stakeholder that it needs to win at the end. And you need to have the confidence that, that, that they will. So I'm not against fundraising. And, and you're right, I am considering fundraising in the future. Interesting. When we do fundraise, we want to be as certain as we can be that we will do that responsible and with the right partners and with the right vehicle. And we want to bring the investors the same value that we bring the consumers. Mm. And I think this is mostly a call to solve the idea of entrepreneurship. I think as entrepreneurs, as an industry of entrepreneurs, we should be doing a little bit better because, you know, we should be doing entrepreneurship for the right reason. And the foundation of entrepreneurship is, is, is value creation. That is it. It's not about a vague vision or a sort of unfaltering ambition. It's not about you getting rich. All of that byproducts, the core business, the core outcome of any entrepreneurship is to create value. And you have to do that for your workforce, for your customers and for the investors. Because no one, no one is obliged to fund (laughs) your role play. Mm. It's a hard journey. It, it does have sacrifice and it has to be done when you're ready and you're confident that you can convince people that you're here to create value for everybody, including them, the investor. Mm. So the quick answer is we were not ready. I didn't feel we were ready. I didn't mm. think we proved ourselves enough in a difficult market to, you know, of enterprise health to go out with, you know, a, a slide promising that we will dominate the world and this is how many billions that market is. And somehow I will, I will be the one that conquers it. I think you need more than that. Yeah. I, think, I think we passed on a lot of the consumer um, ideas 
um, consumer sort of entrepreneurship to enterprise entrepreneurship, and I don't think it does apply. Mm. So this is the reason why we didn't. And equally, this is the reason why at some point we will. Mm. Um, we are currently in, and in, in, a few, in a few places, and we currently have, you know, one market is funding the next market um, in a different country, and that market now is funding a third market. But it feels, it does feel a bit slow now because in, in inserting into a market is certainly a lot it needs a lot of resources. So it's not, not doable, and, uh, but it will definitely be a little bit slower than if we, if we had some investment. So maybe. So we, we, we do discuss it. And you know, as you said, I have been tempted um, a lot. I mean, I mean, you can imagine that. I'm, I'm sure you probably have as well. In 2020, 2021, with the pandemic, it was tempting. And we, you know, we could see what was happening around us. We would see fundraising that is happening in ways that I never thought possible. And mm. I, it, it was baffling at times to me. Um, and I thought, well, this is, why don't we jump on that? Mm. I don't know if we did make the right decision. I think the decision we did make to sort of um, hold steady, it, it did have some benefits. And I'm guessing I would, uh, I would never know the, the path not taken, right? Mm, exactly. Exactly. Well, not for 21, 22, 23. So it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult question to answer, essentially, you know, why we didn't. Uh, these, are, these were my reasons, and essentially it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I think most of the leadership at Open Medical felt similarly, more or less. There were variations of that, and you know, um, but we were all sort of essentially on, on the same page on that subject. Yeah. I really want the listeners to, to take from this that, first of all, what you said there, that entrepreneurship is about creating value, and that includes creating value for investors. I think the way that we often talk about getting investment is like me getting investment. I get investment. We get investment. The company gets investment. And then we celebrate the investment. We do the press release of we've got 6 million, we've got 12 million, we've got 30 million. It's like you've got that on a promise of delivering some serious value to, as you've quite rightly pointed out, the patients, the market, the organizations, the customers, the investors themselves. And actually, it was a really interesting flip that you did there about like having empathy for the investors, you know, asking yourself the question, can I create value for them? Because and it's funny that you say that because whenever I'm asked, like you know, would you take on debt from the bank or would you would you you know let someone put a million quid in for blah blah? blah. I've said similar things previously. Like I need to feel really confident that I'm going to give them their money back and then some. I need to because I would hate the feeling it would just burn a hole in me, like the feeling of 
like debt to somebody that's backed me that I couldn't do. And that's why, like, I think it's a mindset thing as well. Like, I don't think I'm the right sort of personal mindset to actually raise money until it's so blatantly a good idea. <laughs> like my, I guess my bar for, I've talked this before, like my bar for a good idea is quite high and actually uh, sort of to my detriment when it comes to things like investment, I sh- probably should be a bit more relaxed on it, but um, I'd, I'd probably take debt before I take equity anyway. But yeah, entrepreneurship is about creating value. And I think that is definitely something that that people should take away. The other thing that I think is interesting here is you don't actually need to build a billion dollar company to make a difference. First of all, to create value, you don't actually, it doesn't actually need to be a billion dollars, first of all. And secondly, when it comes to taking investment, you're sort of committing to that. And I liked what you talked about that those types of decisions come with sacrifice. They do, because all of a sudden, especially if you're on a fund with a 10-year clock, I know a lot of them are evergreen funds now that are, you know, a lot longer horizon and stuff, but you're somewhat on the clock. You've now got really big goals and ambitions that you might have said to get the investment. Now you've got to truly believe it's going to happen and all these different things. Of course, everybody wants to create that value and all those different things, but it becomes a bit more real that actually this thing might get shut down if you don't now. Like this might come off your hands now. There's lots of other things that you're bringing to the table, but to conclude this rambling thought on a reflection of what you've said, like I like that what you've said is not don't take investment because of course there are good things and bad things. What you've said is here's a different framework to think about it. And you are someone who has gone full circle and is actually like, and now I'm thinking about it. And I think that's why I think your your advice is credible here, right? Because like you're you're not you don't have a don't take investment framework. You have a this is how I'm thinking about investment framework. And I just love the fact that your evidence that you don't need it. If you have your co-founders right, you've got a domain expert, you've got a technical expert, you're able to go fast in-house, you're able to, you know, fail forwards and fail fast and all those different things very quickly because you've got the ability in-house, you can it's sweat equity, it's all those things. Your evidence that that can work. And I think that again put another way is evidence of how to get money at a better value, actually, because you've got those things in house and all these different things and the way people look at it. Absolutely. Look, James, what you say about you know, yes, I investment in enterprises is good. We don't want to be. We don't want to be in a, in a, in a, in a leave where the only investment is speculative. Absolutely. I don't want people only investing in mortgages and and, oh, and, God, and yeah. crypto. <laughs> we want productive investment. Yes. Right. So we we do want people investing in enterprise. Yes. And I think this is where the interest rate and inflation situation it makes it hard because we absolutely do want that. But I think. So I think the investors are doing the right thing. Mm. I think the investors, they absolutely want to fund productive enterprise. Mm. I think it's the entrepreneurs that they need to understand that that's what they are. Yeah. They are productive enterprise. And it does come down to production. Mm. So it, I think the, the, the burden here is how do we, what is the narrative we give to entrepreneurs? And I think there has been a shift in the narrative that it is about lifestyle 
somehow I've never seen that myself. Or it is about wealth. And I think this is what we saw um, we, we, we need to change. I think entrepreneurs should go in willing to sacrifice and they should take those bad odds themselves mm. first before they ask other people to do. So I think you, we should position the risk a little bit better because eventually that capital, it is absorbed out of a system and it does skews the market. And I think it should it should be used better by, by enterprises. So, mm. and that's why my message is to entrepreneurs and not really to investors that we should, we should, when we do ask for someone to become a partner, we need to be very clear what we will, what is the value we're going to bring them. And you might be a billion dollar company. Mm. It doesn't stop you not being one. But you will have the the focus on being a billion dollar company instead of your next round. Interesting. And the press release, as you mentioned, you know, is like the false metrics of success, right? This is the the vanity metrics. How much I raised, mm. or why is my head count? Mm. Or and all of that is great, but it has to come with other metrics. Why is your market momentum? Hmm. What is your market share? What is your revenue? What is your profitability? What are your costs? And because if you only talk about what you raised and only talk about your headcount, is uh, like the recent AI discussions when you talk about sensitivity and you leave the specificity out, <laughs> is half the story. Yes, quite, quite. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I might come across a little bit more sort of uh, unforgiving. Well, you'd be a tough man to get angel investment from, I think. Yes, probably. <laughs> I mean, I will, yeah, I, yeah, I will probably ask to go through your uh, code repository. I'll probably see every <laughs> line there. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about, talk to you about Open Medical Pathpoint. Obviously, we talked about the challenges of organic growth. We talked about some of the benefits of organic growth, that discipline, that efficiency mindset, the innovation mindset. We talked lots of different things. And obviously you're now looking to do investment to, or potentially looking to do investment to get into other markets and things like that. What sort of scale have you achieved with Open Medical and with Pathpoint? by whatever metrics you determine are proper metrics of success, whether you want to talk about sites or you want to talk about revenues or you want to talk, if you want to talk about headcount or whatever it is, but um, yeah, just to give people a flavor and a feel for like, you know, how, how long has this journey been? Cause it's not very quick actually, like what three years or you've done a lot of growth in that time where initially it was back in 20 something, but yeah, just talk to me about like the growth and where you're at now and, and yeah, kind of the scale that you've achieved. Yeah, so so we we started with um, uh, essentially four hospitals um, at the very beginning of all allow London and essentially is you know people that I knew and they came around as part of the soft rotation. Um, we then sort of um, we currently have I think seventy 
something instances out. Oof. So I think overall probably serving 150 NHS sites. Uh, that is on the NHS wow. site. We have a dozen, on, a, a dozen on private. Um, we are um, currently operating um, and we're expanding quite fast in in, in Ireland. And we in uh, we're launching our first um, our first soft solution in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia in March. And that will um, that will be a, a, a cluster solution, um, which will solve about 14 hospitals. Um, so this is our, our current focus. We we do have some other soft. Uh, com- um, uh, we have another yeah, a different pipeline, but this is of the currently deployed um, soft sort of, um, solutions. I expect uh, a, a, a probably, I think we're going to maintain a sort of triple digit, uh, triple digit uh, growth in 2024. Um, we're moving more towards a regional and national solution. I think um, um, currently um, there is a bit of a move of um, of soft clinical operations and how do you um, now con- uh, share care and how you control um, clinical traffic across a full region with multiple hospitals. We're very well positioned uh, to do that, technologically that is. Mm. Um, and um, so I, I think 2024 is going to be a busy year for us, um, looking at our, soft, um, at our current soft implementation pipeline. We currently, so we we I, I can't complain. I think the the growth is 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 good. Um, we 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 thought we would um, we'd hit a point of saturation uh, at some point, especially in some of the sort of uh, verticals. Um, um, I, I was thinking we'd hit a saturation um, this year. It looks like we didn't. I think we will eventually hit a saturation. Um, I mean, you know, when you approach. 70% of a certain market, it becomes very hard <laughs> at that point to keep expanding on that. Uh, yeah, so we diversified and we, we had mm. to sort of find different markets. And uh, so we diversified in these sort of three ways. We diversified mm. in, in other verticals in terms of uh, platform. Uh, diversity of LAB on regional care models. Mm. Uh, we diversified in private um, with uh, pharma, medical devices, um, you know, remote monitoring, drugs, and, you know, um, and we diversify to other markets altogether. I think out of all of those, the other markets is the hardest. Yeah. Uh, it's operational, it's logistically hard, it's expensive. Yeah. We have to set up teams into other countries. Is The governance become a lot more challenging. Mm. You know, we're running, you know, you know, we have to establish multiple data centers because we're highly regulated. And so the, the logistical Challenges and logistical mm. costs. Um, I, I think we, I think we're doing okay. Um, we, we are increasing uh, our headcount. So I think we, yeah, I think we. So last year we added probably about twenty, twenty-five people, and I think next year I don't think it's going to be less than that. I, I'm trying really hard to be as lean as as possible, but it becomes not easy mm. and. I mean, you know, so we 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 revamping our people's framework, and you know, we're trying to sort of 
um, govern workforce and productivity in, in, in a way uh, is probably one of the most difficult problems to do mm. in organic growth. And that is, um, and that is sort of workforce of management, productivity management. And, you know, because you, you, you have to maintain the highest level of productivity you can, while at the same time you give value back to that workforce, which is more than payroll, is, is progression, is skills, is careers. So, um, but we're slowly getting there. Mm. So, you know, um, you know, we, 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 we put the framework out. We, we did a, a recent restructuring, which is mostly about governance, and we created a better path to leadership. Um, mm. The challenge I see uh, in 2024, by the end of 2024, uh, strangely enough, I see I'm worried less about market growth, mm. um, knowing the pipeline we have. I think our biggest challenge is scaling up leadership. Uh, I think we're mm. getting to that point that we need to create more and more leadership. And this is probably a leadership journey. Uh, being through it is not it's not for everybody. It's not, you know, not everybody has the appetite. And, you know, and for some people it's easier. For some people it might not be as easy. And unfortunately, I will need more leadership in the next 12 to 18 months. Hopefully from in, in, internally. Hopefully I want to see the leadership coming up from internally. But I have to be realistic. And I think we most likely end up with a with a hybrid of new leadership, both internally and externally. Um, I just hope they will be mostly internally. But is I'm, I'm trying, we, we're trying as much as we can to enable that, but is a, is a multi-stakeholder game and um, everybody has to play for that. And, and um, I think there are definitely some good examples there from the, from the current uh, work, um, from the current talent, but We'll see. I think we, when we meet in a year, I'll probably give you the breakdown of how much of that new leadership came um, was, was headhunted and how much was, was grown <laughs> organically from the inside. Yeah, I've just been hit with some recruiter fees that, uh, that that made me cringe a little bit. Yeah, getting people in the sort of mid mid high yeah. levels is uh, is tough. And yeah, you're right, growing them from within is much easier. I have a couple, just two two more questions. First one. Based on what you just said, the first one is, how do you deal with watching the money go out of the account every month at the level that you're at? When you see payroll go out every month, that must be quite eye-watering. Do you still feel attached to it as your yeah. money because it's your company, you, you've grown it organically? It's not investors' money, it's your money. You could quit tomorrow and take a lot of that uh, kind of thing. So that's my first question. The second one is, do you practice medicine anymore? Right, I'll start with the second one. It's easy. I do, but I only do uh, one day, so I'm still practicing. I, 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 I know that might sound a little bit bizarre, but I, I found it as as good escapism as well. I it's think, nice. I think it grounds me. It's nice. Um, I think it does ground me. Have yep. one day being on that floor, yeah, seeing nice. the patients, and you know, and and eating my own food, you know, <laughs> using being a user. Um, uh, I think, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm keeping that. I think as far as I can see, I don't see a reason mm. not to. Um, I have to sacrifice probably, um, most of the weekend to 
essentially pay mm. for that Friday. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I think it's currently giving me good sort of a good ground that mm. um, sometimes you lose as part of uh, of what we do. And so on the on the first question, it used to. Mm. So. Yes, it's, it's interesting that when the payroll was 60,000 a month, it used to bother me a lot more and it used to bother me a lot, a lot less when it goes to 350,000 a month and 400. So interestingly, there is a point that you feel that I have to let go. I, you have to let go. I, I, I see your point and sometimes it's off. But I think in many ways um, is is useful to focus on what's coming in mm. and uh, is healthier. Uh, mm. I think it's, it's also better for you as well to focus on what's coming in. What I would suggest is that, uh, try, you know, my, my advice would be one of the things we did early is we got a full-time accountant. So yeah. we're managing our own accounts. We're managing our own credit control as a full-time employee. Um, I think that is invaluable. And I think it was after we were 15 people or so back in 20, I think early 2020, when we got a full-time accountant, I say get full-time legal counsel. So um, the accountant and your legal counsel can start arranging um, your procurement mechanisms and make that, you know, make the way you're getting procured a little bit better. Um, it will bring in some of that cash flow a little bit earlier. Yeah. And that will allow you to utilize it for your next recruitment round. Um, Interesting. HR, HR, we go. Um, later, so we waited until we were, I think probably 25, 30 people before we actually got an HR person. Which then five people later, you became, you know, we got a sort of assistant HR. So then now you have an HR team, and I think, um, yeah. So 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 I think the best way, um, uh, if you're organic, and uh, is to to really let go. You, you have to let go. You, you need to see you need to see your accounts as um, sort of uh, your quiver of arrows and um, hmm. arrows go out and arrows go in. And I think you, you need to become comfortable with that. Um, if you have a good accountant with good, you know, with with good reporting and um, I'm not. I mean, they, they still, they still, uh, you know, explain to me, um, James, you know, sometimes, you know, I, you know, they had to go through the, you know, the cash flow and the accrual and, 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 and the VAT account and all of that stuff. And, um, and, and at least now our accountants know that, you know, I just, you know, I'm a quite simple person on that. So I just want to know, are we, Making at least one pound more than we spend. <laughs> That's all I know. And are we, and are we having a good enough credit control so we're getting that pound so at least close to spending it? Yes. No, no, a year later. Yes. I mean, you know, we, we do, we do keep like, you know, you, you obviously, you know, you need to have a capital, you know, you, you need to be ahead on your cash flow as much as possible. I think this is probably 
um, which is coming back a little bit to the investment. This is probably one of the things that investment would really, really help uh, or any type of fundraising because what we currently have to do, we need to keep a reserve of four or five months. So this is, this is capital that we keep because you can never be certain about your credit control. So you reserve that capital that is just sort of sitting there so it can, it can, you know, so it can go out before new comes in. So that's where fundraising comes, um, useful. So you release all that capital that is actually all profit sitting, you know, in a, uh, sitting ahead as a reserve. Um, but yeah. So good accountant and um, time eventually gets easier. I promise you. Thank you. I'm glad you've I'm glad you've picked up on the fact that I've asked that selfishly because yes, dealing with payroll and then VAT and then it, like it it hurts. You know, like especially when you're sitting on four or five months. I used to go to my app and check balance mm. every day. I did, and. I mean, the balance is not going to change. I mean, you could just check after your payroll, right? But you, you can't reconcile that. You, you, you stress. You think, okay, I need to make sure everything gets paid. And so you need to check that balance every day as if it's going to evaporate. And, 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 and slowly. You I feel check so seen. Month, I feel so seen now, in this conversation. <laughs> I know. I, 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 look, I, I, I think most people go through that journey. And it's, as we said, closing that, what we said at the beginning, that is more of an identity journey than anything. And I think it's up to us as entrepreneurs how we, how we form that identity as we develop it, how we mold it through that journey. And whether that would be with fundraising or without fundraising, how do we shape the identity we develop? Because this is the type of enterprise we will run at the end. Mm. What a beautiful way to end, I think, Harry. This has been an absolute pleasure. A masterclass, I think, in uh, how to consider fundraising, whether you are fundraising or whether you're not, whether you yeah, want to go for that with a co-founder and how to get the best valuation on your money. And yeah, I, I think an, an, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we didn't even get to talk about AI. That's how, that's how valuable this conversation was for um, an hour and 16 minutes, but I'm sure I can get you back on. Maybe next about that. time. I have, yeah. a of, uh, I have a lot to say about AI. I you, don't doubt you that you do. In fact, let's definitely bring you on to talk about that because I want to hear those opinions. But um, yeah, Harry, as I say, absolute pleasure for coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to have the other side of the coin there, just the other view of someone that's built a, a tech company selling to healthcare organizations that hasn't raised money, has managed to bootstrap the entire way. It's come with problems. It's come with advantages. Ultimately, there's no right or wrong answer, but you've given us all a framework in how to understand it a little bit better so for that i appreciate you um thank you for coming on uh if people want to learn more about open medical pathpoint yourself what's the best way for them to do so so i think we are quite active on linkedin so please follow us there and i have to say our web uh 
web designer. He would be very keen if you go to www.openmedical.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletter. And our copywriter would be equally thankful because uh, <laughs> they, they're doing some good work. Superb. Harry, thank you so much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.